Have you ever climbed a mountain or walked on a trail and you thought that the trail was never going to end? As you began walking on it, you felt like it was just going to continue on and on and on and on and on and never going to end. Though you, you knew how far you were going to walk or how long uh, the hike was going to be or how long the sidewalk was going to be, you felt at, at, the, at one point during the hike or the walk or the run or the jog that this could go on for forever. Um, I think that uh, as we talk about and as we conclude here for, a, for just a, a brief time, as we talk about discipleship, as we talk about this journey that we're on, we have to remember that discipleship is, is not a program. It is a, it's a path. It's something that we're walking on. It's a, it's a going. It's not just a receiving for a moment, but it's a continuation. And sometimes that continuation is difficult. Sometimes that climb is, is not so fun. Sometimes comfort is not upon the path that Christ has called you to. I just want to remind you from the words of Jesus from John 14:6. I think you probably have it memorized. Jesus says, I am the program, and I am the good words, and I am the afterlife. And no one goes to the Father except through these things, right? Now, he, he in fact says this in John 14:6. He says, I am the way, which is a path a trail, a walkway, a running path. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We have to be reminded constantly that this path of discipleship is indeed a path, and that path is Jesus, and that we are all, as followers of Jesus, in obedience to him, and abiding in him should be being transformed into his likeness that people will be begin recognizing Jesus upon this earth still because of the people that he is abiding in, the people that he is living in or dwelling in, his word and himself living in so that, so that he can make his presence known upon this world. He is the way. I know you have it memorized, but how often do we forget that he is the way? There is no other way. And he is the truth. Remember last week, remember from last week that we read, from Revelation chapter 19, that, uh, that he is faithful and true, that he is the truth. There is no truth above him. There's no truth greater than him. He is the truth. So he is the way and the truth, and he is the life. He is not the next life to come or the afterlife or just the eternal life, but he's in fact the life. At the moment, right now, he is life. He is giving you life, and he will continue to give you life and praise him because we so long for eternal life. We so long to live forever. We can trust in his completed work, and we can still trust in and daily, continually trust in life that he's giving, life at the moment and life forever. So I cannot convince you, like I mentioned last week, I can't plea with you anymore. I can't, I can't pull at your heartstrings or, or tempt you into tears to try and make you love Jesus. Like I couldn't make my family see that Mandy is a worthy bride to have or a worthy wife to have. I can't persuade you anymore. You have to be, your eyes and your heart have to be opened to who Jesus is. 
And I think once you see that, then every minute of your waking or sleeping day, you will say, I want to be more and more like Jesus because of the completed work that he's done, because of who he is. What's the blessing of Jesus? Jesus. What's the reward of Jesus? Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth. He is the life. Another really familiar verse that you probably have memorized also is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and in all your ways He will make your paths straight. So you know this, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We're trusting in Christ, not leaning on our own understanding. Because he has a better vantage point on life or in life. And because of that, we trust in him completely. We have to trust in him that he knows and he sees better than anything else. In my short uh, tenure as a Little League baseball coach, I can walk out to the mound to speak with the Little League baseball pitcher who is hearing so many other things from outside the fence and I can focus the pitcher on, on the moment and say, now listen, this is what I'm seeing. And this is what I'm hearing. But focus upon, focus upon this. In fact, one game, I called our whole little team over and, and told them, now listen, in, in just a moment, things are going to get really, really loud. In just a moment, you're going to hear lots and lots of voices. And they're going to be distracting. People are going to be saying great things, encouraging things. People are going to be saying negative things. People are going to, saying, uh, going to be saying discouraging things. You need to know at this moment that the baseball game is happening inside this fence. So pay attention to what's happening inside this fence. And one of our players, who's full of wisdom, says, unless they hit a home run. Okay, well, yes, if the ball goes over the fence, then yeah, you're right. But at the moment, the game is happening inside this fence. The coach sits back. He sees what's happening in the game, and he tries to give a better vantage point. We have to trust, we have to trust in that, in those words of, of wisdom. And this is where Christ comes into play in our life. Trusting that if we are following him, that he truly knows best. If he is truly the way and truly the truth and truly the life, why would we search for anything else? Why would we run after anything else? Why would we try out another path? Why would we try out another walkway if he is truly the only way. We lean not on our own understanding, but completely trust in, completely trust in Him. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. We call this uh, the Great Commission. Commission. Somebody charging us to go do something. I think you're, you may be familiar with these, with these verses. We may be familiar with these verses. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20 say this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but yet some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, like we talked about last week, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, or as you're going, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, or lo, I am with you always to the end of the age." Christ gives this commission statement, this commandment, this charge to those who desire to follow him. The past four weeks we've talked about these four statements 
uh, that really could help define the path of a disciple. If you're on the path of discipleship or you're on the path of a, a follower of Jesus, what might your life look like? We talked about faithful proclamation of Christ and his teachings. Peter told us in Second Peter, in First Peter chapter 2 uh, that, uh, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of God because he's created us as his people. He's chosen us. He's given us a charge. He's given us this commission. He's given us something to live for. So we are faithful to proclaim Christ and his teachings. Remember, if you remember back from that sermon at all, we talked about don't give credit where credit is not due, but give credit to where credit is due, and it is only due to Jesus. So faithful proclamation of Christ and his teachings. Look here in the, in the Great Commission teaching them to observe all that I have commanded or teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. We as a church, we as the people belonging to God, this is our mission, that we would fulfill it. This is the commission that Christ has given to us, that we would teach people to obey all that Christ has commanded. Faithful proclamation of Christ and his teachings. We cannot steer away from that. And then also we talked about, uh, secondly, that we would be obediently abiding in Christ. That if we are on the path of discipleship, if we are following Jesus, that our life will represent someone who is obediently abiding in Christ. That we're not trying to live or dwell in something or, or someone else, but our whole life is wrapped up in dwelling or living in Jesus. It's a daily thing. It's a wake up. Today is about Jesus. It's a go to bed. Today or this day was about Jesus. It's us living in Jesus, constantly abiding in Him. If you remember John 15, John records for us that Christ said, apart from Him, you can do nothing. You can't do anything. You can't produce fruit. You can't have righteousness. You can't produce love or faithfulness or obedience to Christ if you're not abiding in Christ. You can, you can produce nothing. It is all for waste. We must be obediently abiding in Christ. And then a difficult topic that we talked about just a, a couple of weeks ago about unity through, unity through love. We talked about how as the people belonging to God, that we would be demonstrating or putting on display that we have a love for one another. The people belonging to God on the path of discipleship, followers of Jesus, would be seeking to show unity through love. We will disagree on a number of topics. Some are shallow and some are deep. But our job as followers of Jesus on this path of discipleship is to seek to show unity through love. That we could look past our differences and our disagreements and we could be united through the love of Christ, representing Him well and representing Him and Him alone. And last week we talked about that as followers of Jesus that we're constantly recognizing the power, the authority, and the righteousness of Jesus. Once we begin recognizing that He has all power, that He has all authority, and that all righteousness comes through Him, then as we're on this path of discipleship, to begin to recognize that He and He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And that only going through Him can we receive those things. Not that we're seeking power or seeking authority, but we're in desperate need of righteousness. We're in desperate need of our broken relationship with God healed through the blood of through the blood of Jesus. So we're constantly recognizing the power, the authority, the righteousness, 
that all come from, or all has, uh, Jesus has all the, uh, scoring the market on, on those, on those things. Once we begin recognizing Jesus for who Jesus truly is, then transformation begins to happen in our lives. Once we recognize that Jesus has all power, has all authority, that righteousness only comes through him, then transformation begins to happen in our lives. This will be the last fishing story that I tell you uh, for for the next couple of weeks. Okay, but turn to John chapter twenty-one. I guarantee you, I will you will not hear me talk about fishing next Sunday. I can guarantee that. John chapter twenty-one. I know that we live in a microwave society. I know that we want things quickly. We like convenient stores. We like fast food. Uh, as soon as today's over and we have our fellowship meal, like there's so, someone, there's someone in this room who's hoping that as soon as we say we're done in here, that they can walk into the fellowship hall and just begin eating. We live in this quick, fast-paced society, but we have to constantly be reminded that this path of discipleship that we're on is a continuation. It's a constant thing. It's not a quick. There's not a secret magic pill. There's not a drink. There's not a quick weekend. There's not a program six weeks and you're done. Uh, There's not a disciple now. It doesn't happen. It's a discipleship. It's a path. It's an ongoing thing. You haven't reached it. My, My hope for you would be that you're at a certain age and you're matured in Christ and you've reached the point of like the pinnacle of, of, of Christianity, but you haven't reached it because we haven't seen you die on a cross yet. So once you die on a cross and once you save your, save the entire world from their sins, then we can say you've reached that moment, but you haven't reached it yet. And so we're still continually growing. Uh, Peter says in Second Peter, uh, chapter one, verse 12, like I'm, I have no uh, I have no problem with constantly reminding you about these simple things because I know that you're in need of of them. So I have no problem myself reminding you of these simple things because I know you're like me and you're human and you're a sinner and you're broken and you're in need of of, of healing and that only comes through Jesus. And so because of all of that, I can remind you of these simple things. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 21 says this, And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Right? A great moment. Uh, Why do you think that Christ chose fishermen to make disciples out of them? Probably because they're patient. They know about long-suffering. They know about nights and days of not catching anything. Why did he choose tax collectors? Why did he choose sinners to be his disciples? Because they understood where they were coming from. They had a background of understanding what this world was like. So we had this moment where we're catching up with Jesus' disciples after Christ has been crucified buried, resurrected. They've already seen him once, seen him a second time. They've seen some things that he's doing, but yet they're still, they're at a moment of, uh, they don't know what's next. They're not sure. There's some uncertainty in what's, what's about to happen. I would even dare say that they've come to a point of distraction, come to a point of discouragement to some degree. They're in need of, dis- of direction. That was cool. That was three preacher moments there. They were all started with D. 
distraction, discouragement, and they were in need of direction. And so because of that, because they're human, because they're not sure about what this new path of discipleship looks like, they go back to their old ways. Simon Peter said to them, hey, guys, listen, I'm not sure what we're supposed to be doing right now, so I'm going to go back to the things that I know. My grandpa says the quickest way to go is the way you know. And so because of that, Peter, he says, hey, I'm not sure exactly what to do. I'm just going to go back to what, what I know to do. So Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they looked at Peter, the, the old wise one who just denied Jesus and is a great example of grace. They say, hey, well, we'll go with you, right? You're going fishing. We're fishermen. We'll just go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Cool story, right? I mean, fishermen, this is their job. This is what they do. And they go fishing and they catch, they catch nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They saw a figure. They saw a man standing on the shore. Uh, and they could recognize a little bit that at least it was a man or at least that there was someone standing on the shore. And this particular person, verse 5 says this, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Now they, remember, these are men. They're young men, but they're still, they think, they, they think that they're men. And how many of you men, if you were fishing or out doing something, if someone yelled that you hate children, have you caught any fish you would already be offended like I've been on the lake when someone has yelled out, out across the water hey you catching any fish and you're frustrated because you want to say no and you want to tell the truth but you also want to feel like you're a man so you so you you're you're caught in this dilemma do I lie because I'm a fisherman that's what we do or do I tell the truth and so they answered him no and he said to them cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some so here they are using the net they're trying to catch fish for whatever reason. They've been fishing on one side of the boat, and this man from the shore yells at them and says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. You, you know someone. Someone on the boat said, we've tried everything. I mean, this guy, who is this guy? What gives him credibility to tell us to cast the net onto the other side? Remember, these disciples, they're distracted. I'm assuming because they've caught nothing, they're discouraged. And they're in need of direction. And with that, someone yells at them and gives them direction. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity, because of, the quantity of fish. They threw the net out on the other side. They start scooping the net up. And obviously there were fish on that side. I don't know how they didn't see them because they're fishermen. They didn't have sonar, I guess, or whatever. So they threw their net on the other side. They start trying to haul it up, and it is so heavy it was hard. They weren't even able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. In verse 7, So that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, looked immediately to Peter, and he said, It is the Lord. It is the Lord. He recognized, hey, this isn't just some cool fish story. Like this is God at work in our life. This isn't just some another uh, random person on the shore saying, hey, try the other side, try a different lure, try a different net, try a different play, uh, part, part of the ocean or the sea. This is somebody who has power, who has authority. This is somebody who knows something, who has a greater vantage point on life, a greater vantage point on fishing than I do at this moment. And he looks at Peter. John looks at Peter and he yells or says with an exclamation there, it is the Lord. He gave credit to where credit is due. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work. He was in his work clothes. He put on his other clothes, and he threw himself into the sea to swim to the shore, right? He was excited. He was either excited or extremely guilty. He felt guilty. 
If he was excited, he just wanted to get there as quickly as he could. If he's guilty, like a number of people deal with guilt, he knew that he should have been doing something different, so he's trying to get back. Well, I wasn't in the boat. Maybe that's what he was. But I'm going to go with he was excited. He wanted to worship Christ. He knew that it was the Lord, and so he did everything he could to get back to where he should be. And then the other disciples, verse 8 says this, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So Peter's a great swimmer, apparently. He swam 100 yards, quickly beat the boat there, though they, were, uh, they had all these fish. It's just an interesting scenario we have here. You've read this story before. Verse 9 says this, And when they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. The last time that John pointed out about a charcoal fire was when Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire just chapters before when he was denying his association with Jesus. So here they are again. John writes for us that are there by a charcoal fire. There's some fish laid out on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard, and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So a miracle is happening. A true working of Jesus is happening. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They didn't have to ask him to give his name. They understood. They knew that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so they were with fish. And so, so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we have this great moment, a great fishing story. Uh, a moment of the, the disciples being discouraged. They caught nothing. Being distracted. We're not even sure what we're supposed to be doing right now. Let's just uh, go back to what we know. Uh, a moment of in desperate need of direction. And so Christ follows up with these, with these next statements. Directing conversation to Simon Peter. Verse 15 says this. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Similar question he was asked when he was asked if he was associated with Jesus back at that charcoal fire. Jesus is asking a pointed, directed question, do you love me more than these? Uh, just for a moment, this is not good Bible study, but just for a moment, think in your own life, if Christ was to have this audible conversation with you today, and he was to say, do you love me more than these? Who is, who is these? Or what are these? If you were to fill in that blank, what would Jesus be asking you? Do you love me more than these? Particularly, in this case, Jesus is probably asking Peter, do you love me more than these people that are with us? So think for a moment in your own life, if Christ was to ask you this question, do you love me more than these? How would you answer it? Well, answer it. I would say most of us in this room, as I, as I know, uh, know you a little bit, I'm assuming because of great Sunday school training, you would say, yes, absolutely I love you more than these. I've been trained to say that. I've been trained to say that. I've been trained to say, and I have the knowledge to know that I need to say that I love you more than everything else in this, this world, including the people that I love that are around me. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He gives the correct response. He has a great knowledge and understanding of what to say at the right moments. 
I mean, you would almost think that if, if Peter would have gone through a great Southern Baptist Sunday school, like, he, like this, is the, this is the pinnacle. Like I've reached the moment where Christ, the one who saved me, the one who loves me, who loves the entire world, but particularly he loves me, he's asking me, do I, do I love him? I know the answer to this. I don't have to wait for anybody else. I don't have to phone a friend. I don't have to ask for some prompting like, what should I say in this moment? But instead, I know the answer. I know the answer is, yes, Lord, I do. Can you imagine back to a wedding ceremony? Maybe you've been to one where the, where the preacher or the parson or the chaplain or the uh, justice of the peace or whoever is asking the bride and the groom, and what if the bride had to be prompted when the question is asked, do you love this groom? And, and a prompting had to happen. You're supposed to say yes. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. Yes, I do love, I do love this, this groom. But I mean, we know the answer. We have a knowledge of it. We know what the answer should be. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him with a head knowledge, of course, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I have no doubt this morning I could ask each and every one of you in this room specifically, do you love Jesus? And you would answer back, yes, because of the setting because of your training, because of your knowledge, you would say, yes, I love Jesus. But how many of you are willing to walk and go feed some sheep? How many of you are to go and walk along the path and tend to the flock? He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend to my sheep. Verse 17 he said to him the third time. Can you feel the frustration, the anticipation growing? Simon, son of John, do you love me? I mean, maybe for a moment, we read on here that Peter's grieved, but maybe for a moment he's really having this introspection. He's really looking deeply into himself. He's thinking through his what, what he was trained to say. Have, have I not been saying it appropriately? Am I using the wrong words? Am I, am I not saying it in the right dialect? Does he not understand what I'm saying? Is it too early in the morning? Maybe the, uh, the crucifixion has hurt his ears. What's going on? How come Jesus is asking this again? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, why is he asking me this again? I answered it once. I was seven years old and I answered it one time. Wasn't that enough? I walked the aisle. Wasn't that enough? I said all the right things. Isn't that enough? Why is he asking me again? Like Not to challenge your salvation moment at all. Not to put any kind of guilt or conviction on you at all. But discipleship is a daily walking with Jesus, along the path with Jesus, abiding in him daily. It's not a one time I love you and that's enough. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, that's what saves you. Not you saying and the knowledge that you have, that's not what saves you. Christ is who saves you. And in walking with him and abiding in him, a daily relationship with him, that's what's desired of disciples of Jesus. Why are you asking me again? Why are you saying to this, 
why, why? Why are you asking me? I'm grieved. Why are you asking me, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. He starts pleading with him, quoting things that he, he'd been taught. I have these things memorized. I've been through the training. I know what's, what's to come. Look, look, Jesus, you know everything. Why are you asking me this again? Lord, you know everything. You, you know that I love you. You can see inside of me. You can see my heart. You can, you can see what my mind is thinking. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I just think it's very interesting here. And Christ is pointing his disciples back to something that is so simple. Yet how often do we get so distracted by so many other things? I remember one time at a youth camp, um, our student ministry or our, our youth group was sitting uh, there in the uh, in the worship center, the barn, you know, and uh, we're all kind of close together. And this uh, this honeybee kept going to every seemed like going to every single student in our in our youth group, trying to pollinate each one of them. I don't know. It's just so distracting. And you just see this, you know, and then and then we start giggling because everybody, you know, looks like they're Pentecostal for a second and, and just moving all kinds of movement. Like, hey, you need to be listening. I can't listen because because this bee is distracting me. And you feel like at the moment, like you're calling out, like, you know, crying out to Jesus, like, what I need to do, where's the anointing can of raw spray that I can anoint this bee with and that Satan will, you know, just like be removed from the situation. We're so distracting. That's an easy moment. We're in worship. We're being distracted from what we need to hear. But, but what about those moments where you feel like you just need to go back to work? I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I just need to go back to work. Like youth camp was fun and all, right, Zach? But now i got to get back to work. Well, Sunday was a great time, and we had a great morning of worship, but now i got to get back to work. And here's Christ saying simply, you belong to me, you love me, do these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse Verse 18 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk, and whenever you wanted, uh, wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you, uh, carry you where you are to want, do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, highlight it, underline it, circle it, memorize it, Jesus said to Peter, Follow me. Come on, Peter. You, you've been following him. You, you were with him. You saw him. You saw him do all those miracles. And Christ is having to remind you again, follow me. He goes on to say, Peter turned, and he just saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. And just like any child or any sibling rivalry, even though they're not blood brothers, like any siblings who, who want to prove their righteousness over the other, Christ just gave him three directions plus a follow me, and Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him. And he said, Lord, 
Who is it that is going to betray you? With John in his vision. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What is it, believer, person, following, belonging to God? What is it that's distracting you from following Jesus? I mean, is it someone else, even in this room, who you want to point fingers at? Maybe they're a great godly influencer, but you're distracted by them. And Jesus is crying out, so to speak, follow me. Jesus says it to Peter, who then goes on to lead the church that we have recorded there in Acts. says great things. God uses him in a powerful way. But what if he remained distracted? What if he remained discouraged? What if he remained yet he had the direction? What if he remained trying to figure things out another way? And I think as a follower of Jesus, he has set out the path he has given us the directions. He has encouraged us uh, by, his, by his example. He sustains us by his Holy Spirit and counsels us daily. He gives us a model prayer so that we can beg Jesus for us not to be distracted, yet constantly we try and follow other things. I mean, isn't it interesting I mean, if you have any knowledge of raising any kind of animal, do you really have to tell the shepherd to feed? I mean, many of you know Gerald, Poe in the back there. How many times have you heard him say, i got to go feed? Because he wants to take care of his animals. And here Christ is having to remind Peter, hey, I'm making you a shepherd. I'm making you a fisher of men. Don't be distracted. Go feed my sheep. Tend to my flock. Now, who is the sheep? I know we want to we dig down deep and figure out who the sheep is. Who is it that belongs to Jesus here? Think about Matthew 9, 36, where Jesus looks on the crowd and he has compassion over them because he sees them as helpless, as harassed, as sheep without a shepherd. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send more laborers into the harvest. Simply stated, as you are walking on the path, and the path being Jesus, and abiding in him, and trusting not in your own knowledge, what you've learned over time, but instead trusting in the wisdom that comes from the all-wise one, Jesus, who has the best vantage point on life, you're walking this path, this journey called discipleship, and you're truly following Jesus, then simply stated, you should look for opportunities to feed sheep this week, to tend to the flock this week, to point people to the good shepherd, people who are helpless, harassed, who are in need of compassion. All those things can only come from Jesus. I'll never forget the, uh, the text that I received uh, one night there in Idaloo, Texas from the fire department from our chief. And the text said, 
hey, if we have a fire in the next few weeks, you need to know that brush one is out of commission. So don't go to the fire station for a brush fire and try and start brush one. It will not work. It's out of commission. It's out of commission. It won't work. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's been distracted by a number of other things. It's not going to fulfill the purpose that it's been created for because it's out of commission. Follower of Jesus, people belonging to God, First Baptist Church Lovington, let's not be known as a church that is out of commission. Christ has given us a great commission. Let's feed the sheep. Let's follow Christ. Let's be faithful to proclaim his excellencies, his commandments, his teachings. Let's be faithful to proclaim Christ. Let's be obedient and abide in Christ. Let's seek to show unity through love for one another and for our neighbor and for the world. Let's constantly remind one another to recognize that power and authority and righteousness only come from Jesus. Let's be faithful to these things. Let's hear Jesus' words when he says, If anyone wants to come after me or follow me, let him deny self, take up cross, and follow me. Lord Jesus, help us. You've given us a great commission. We try and make it so difficult. You've made it simple. In fact, you've made it so simple that you direct our paths when we lean not on our own understanding, you direct our paths. Dare say, sometimes you even put people in our path that are in need of in need of Jesus, and you allow us to represent you. God, how merciful you are. Gonna love the fact, God, that you are patient. Think about your servant Peter's words in Second Peter, that he reminds us of being patient and long suffering, and that you are constantly in control. And remind us how your days are not like our days, and your time is not like our time. So we shouldn't be overwhelmed by those things, but instead we should trust in you, knowing that you have the best vantage point. God, give opportunity to me, to others in this room this week, opportunity to feed sheep, tend to the flock, opportunity to love. God, give us opportunity to be faithful, even though sometimes we, we lessen it, but even be faithful to our own family that men might lead well. God, that we as a church would not spend the majority of our time trying to recognize one another or recognize who's greater, who's lesser, but instead we might spend the majority of our time recognizing Christ and Christ alone. God, thank you for being a father who is compassionate, a father who is steadfast in love,
Thank you that we can trust that your word is true. God, help us not to give up. God, for those in the room that are, that are often like me, who get distracted, who get discouraged, God, help us to see that you have given us direction. You've made it simple. You've taken us out of the equation even so that righteousness can come from Christ and Christ alone. You've made it where we don't have to work for our, our salvation or earn it, but instead we can freely live in obedience to you because Christ is our reward. Christ in our place has, has given us right relationship with you. So Lord, help us this week. Help us in this moment to respond to conviction in a way that honors you. God, help us to be encouraged by your Holy Spirit so that we may stand up and walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've placed on our life. God, help us not to point fingers or say it's someone else's job or someone else's responsibility, but help us to see as your followers you've given us purpose, You've given us the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to live for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.